0: Hello everyone, well you're now going to hear my first ever live Tea with Twiggy which I did at the podcast festival with my friend Ben Elton and we're very excited because we're talking about the play that he's written and directed about my life uh, called Close Up and many other things about his amazing work and we did it in front of an audience which was uh, a first for me but very enjoyable and the audience were lovely. So, I hope you enjoy it. Hiya. Goodness. Hello. Hello. I'm Twiggy, and that's Ben. I'm Ben. Muddled up. (laughs) This is so weird because I've been doing my Tea with Twiggy podcast for about. Three years, and you very sweetly did one with me, didn't I you? I did indeed. But this is my show. Usually, second. I do it at home online, and I'm in my tracksuit bottoms and my slippers, and I put a nice top on whoever I'm talking to. Because we're on to. Zoom. Because we're on Zoom. Well, you're a
1: wonderful engineer. You've met for the first time today. I know. Having done so many. Your producer. You my producer. Yeah, absolutely. Kobe
0: on, Kobe. Uh, is at the back there somewhere. He's there somewhere. And, and... We've never met because <laughs> it, when we started the podcast, it was COVID. And um, so I only know. My, when I got out the car tonight, I said to him, "I need a screen round your face because that's <laughs> that's the only way I'm used to looking at him." But anyway, thank you for joining me, Ben.
1: Very much my pleasure. I'm you so know. thrilled I'm it's fan. you
0: I'm talking to, mm. and I want to know because Ben has just starred. Himself in a show that he wrote and directed, and it's been a smash hit every time it's done. We will rock you, the Queen musical, and this time you starred in it.
1: I did, along indeed, alongside Brenda Edwards and Lee mead <clears throat> We had quite a starry cast, and of course, the wonderful uh, galilean Scaramouche, played by Ian Mackintosh, and our very own Eleanor Sky. Eleanor Sky, who's going to be playing uh, playing you. In, yeah. uh, in a new musical, we'll get on. We'll get yeah, on say, to that, we'll talk later. About that later. We'll get on to that. But we I, will rock you.
0: I yeah. want to know because you said to me, it's my first time in the West End. Well, it's not just in my, a show. Not acting. just my
1: first time in the West End. It's my first professional acting, singing of any sort. I'm sixty-four, really? and not only was it my West End debut when we had the very the first warm-up on the stage at the Coliseum, um, which was where. We will rock you as on. It's a, a nice little theatre. A very venerable <laughs> building, three, nearly 3,000 seats. Um, they had a big, uh, oh, we must have the photo for the West End newbies. And, and I was in the middle of it with all these sort of young 20, 22 year olds who were doing their first West End. It was about like half a dozen who'd never been in the West End before. And that included me, but not only not just the West End, I'd never been. I'd never delivered lines professionally. I mean, obviously they're my own lines, but I was still acting. Um, The last time I acted was as a a boy. And the last time I was in a musical was as a boy. I gave my Artful Dodger twice. I was gonna
0: say, you're quite famous for your (laughs) Artful Dodger. Well,
1: I was uh, famous (laughs) in a very small pool. The Surrey (laughs) advertiser were kind enough to say I showed great promise for the future. And it was the last good review I got for about 30 years, actually. Uh, But no, I I loved loved musical theater as a a teenager. You know, like you, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I've been in musical theater professionally a lot. And often been asked by gay men, "Oh my God, Ben, how are you not gay? Because I love musical theatre so much." That's something that's often <laughs> been asked. It's less so now because it's you know the whole everything gender-wise is getting blurred now. But there was a time when there was this idea that straight blokes didn't like didn't musical like musicals, and it? I absolutely love it. And Paul McCartney absolutely loves it. He's a, he's a, he's a, you know he used to fight John Lennon about it because John Lennon thought that's it was so a, thought it was a granny art form, you know, and it's not. It's uh, a <laughs> It's a great art form and I've always loved it. And, you know, kids, my, my mates would all be into football. And I. even now, you know, if you offered me, you know, tickets to the World Cup final with England in it or a good production of Oliver, I'd go to Oliver. I mean, I'm really not <laughs> interested in, no,
0: in no, I'm, I'm with you, you know, I'm I'd, with you.
1: I'd go and see a good musical over a good sports game <laughs> so any when,
0: when you were playing in We Will Rock You, because you wrote it, did you stick to the author's lines or did you <laughs> <laughs> or did you improvise? Well, it was
1: funny. I was a very bad example. Oh. I mean, it's a good question because of course I never let, I,
0: I mean,
1: a, a tiny uh, amount of improvisation allowed. But honestly, most times when actors start kind of thinking they're funny, they found it. That's when they lose it. And you have to be very careful about that. And actors aren't always the best judge of whether they're being funny or not. And if they do something funny, sometimes, they keep trying to do that again, and it was only a moment. So oh, at that time, I just coughed when you—it was—it just got that laugh. So every night they try the cough again. Of course, it'll never be funny again because it was only an improvisatory moment. Um, and so I, I am pretty—I'm pretty firm about not, you know, people don't take the piss out of my script. But then, of course, I get on stage, and I do, and I'm—I'm I'm doing a little bit of extemporizing. So it was a very different. But then I do that. When I'm directing it, I, I throw in new lines and show, you know, I, I, I work with the actors and find where their funny bones are. And so We Will Rock You Morphs, it, it, it changes. And, um, you know, most musicals are are set in stone. Once the West End or Broadway production has been done, there's a Bible that's called the Bible, which is, is a, a, a production notes where every um, Christine holds the rose to the Phantom exactly the same way as, you know, Michael Crawford, uh, I've forgotten the name now, Andrew's second wife, what was her name? Oh,
0: oh. Sarah Brightman. Sarah
1: Brightman, that's why I shouldn't have forgotten that, my goodness, sorry, Sarah, but anyway. So, you know, and every, if you go and see Hamilton anywhere in the world, they are doing exactly the, and of course, with a show that complex, you have to, but We Were Rock You isn't like that, it changes every time, because I'm always working on it, Brian and Roger also, it's a. It's more contemporary jokes, and and I will work with the actors and you'll find what they can do because it's the same with singing the songs. No one can sing, you know, somebody to love like Freddie did, but we have a woman who sings it. No one can sing, we will rock you like like Freddie did, but we have Galileo singing and we always encourage them to find their own rock bones. That's what Brian and Roger do. And I always encourage my actors to find their own funny bones and I work with them. But it it becomes a problem because then I go away, the cover goes on and the cover is doing, Whatever I've given to the, but they have different funny. But it's very. It, it, actually, I wish I would well, written it, a, a Bible and just kept it the same. You know, Twenty-two years ago,
0: theatre is a living exactly. thing. Exactly, it's a living thing. It changes.
1: And when I'm on stage every night as Pop, which is the character I played in We Will Rock You, which is a sort of venerable old hippie guru. It's a kind of. He has the same sort of silly role in the play as Doc in Back to the Future. He's he's kind of the old fool who actually kind of knows things, but he doesn't really have a very, very clear way of expressing himself. Um, And yeah, I did improvise a bit. And it it was kind of frowned upon a bit, not by the cast, they loved it, but by the associate director. And because it's not theatre rules. And when you've got a lot of machinery moving around on stage, and we're all so conscious of health and safety now, as we should be. But you know, it does kill things a bit when they say, look, if you change the, you know, the content of the line, people won't necessarily know where they start. I say, oh, come on, look, they're not stupid. They know I'll I'll end at the right place. I I just might have a meander. In the middle, so yeah, I was a little bit naughty, but I was the director, and yeah. so I, <laughs> I yeah, you could
0: get away with it. I um, I did a production in uh, Chichester of *Blythe Spirit*. I played oh, Elvira, the ghost. The master. Um, no. We had a wonderful actress. I mean, she was lovely. She's not with us anymore. Um, Dead and...
1: or just gone? Gone to Clacton? <laughs>
0: no, she's not. She's not. She's up in the sky. Right. Okay. And I, and, um, I like won't Mm -hmm. Um, she's she was lovely and everything Mm -hmm. but she would jump pages
1: oh no that's
0: (laughs) I mean pages if
1: no (laughs) coward he would have been spinning in his grave let me tell you but
0: she it didn't affect me because I was playing the ghost and the only person who talks to the ghost is Jennifer yeah that's right yeah but Madame Arcati yeah and Charles the husband Uh, oh that's right and the, the actor playing Charles Was such a nervous wreck at the end of the He lost. He lost a stone and a half in weight because she kept. Was she she a little bit.
1: Was she she on the way? Yeah. Yeah, you see, you can't play when you're demented. It's just not, you've got to be. And she would jump. I mean, it's inclusive, but it's no good for the author. She'd not
0: only jump, she'd then go back. So, Paul the production John.
1: is still going on somewhere, I believe. <laughs> uh, there's a no, Noel Coward, hey, one of my favorite sto- Noel Coward stories. I'm a huge Noel Coward fan, <laughs> oh, me like too. The, uh, he's, you know, one of the great great comedians of English letters and brilliant songwriter as well. Uh, and when I talk to actors about you know extraneous syllables, you know, they'll, they'll put a, it, they'll put I means in I mean at the beginning of a sentence or you know, or whatever, and I'll say, No, it's messing with the rhythm of the gag, and they oh. And I, I tell, us an old coward story um, where he was directing Dame Edith Evans in the national theater revival of Hay Fever, which was his, what, his first big comedy success in 1924. Very funny play, and there's a line in it where there, there was always a grand dame in an old coward play like Madame. Yeah. And there's a line where uh, the sort of posh lady says, on a clear day, you can see Marlowe. Now, in order to know his joke, Marlowe's a town, She's also a Renaissance playwright. And there were two other Renaissance playwrights called Beaumont and Fletcher. I don't, you just need to know that in order to get the joke. I mean, it's a long-winded way to get there. So anyway, she goes <laughs> to the window, and Dame Edith Evans said, I would always say, on a very clear day, you can see Marlowe. And one day, Noel Coward said, darling. The line is, on a clear day, you can see Marlowe. On a very clear day, you can see Marlowe and Beaumont and Fletcher. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was, and, and in those days, they knew their Renaissance playwrights, so it brought the house, brought the rehearsal oh, to a, to a yeah. Anyway, oh, uh, that's brilliant. Anyway, don't worry, <laughs> cracking the old coward <laughs> anecdotes. Goodness gracious.
0: Yeah, I, I actually did meet him. Hmm? I was...
1: Well, he would have sought you out. I mean, he no, loved I met, style I met, and class. I met and...
0: him, um... On holiday in jamaica oh you just bumped into yeah him. well i was staying with friends i was like 18 years old i knew obviously i knew who he was i was mm. very nervous well, because very i'd nervous. been warned that he had quite an acidic a brittle, brittle but he was he was so gorgeous and so lovely he
1: would have loved you
0: and uh, we got mm. on a treat mm. and then he came back to england and i the lovely robert stevens the actor mm. who was a great friend of his rang me and said, you know, no, Noel's in hospital and, you know, he's very sick.
1: After Clackton, he was nearly there, <laughs> huh? yes. No, dying. Sorry, yeah, I just, he was, <laughs> yeah. Referring to, me, referring <laughs> to said, an earlier joke. And I'm so just Robert on a loop said bit. to me,
0: Ev- every day I take him a, a surprise gift. Will really? you be the gift tomorrow? Oh, my God. So I went to see him oh. in hospital. Oh,
1: bloody hell.
0: And it was hysterical because, as you know, in hospital you can't smoke, but he was an, a big so chain bad, smoker. Yeah. And th- they kind of look the other way and mm. he had a, a big carton of cigarettes by his mm. bed and as he kind of smoked one he lit the other one yeah. you know but killed him he killed was, of course 73 very did. young yeah very he young. had emphysema but i'm very yeah. very happy i met him yeah, yeah. god i'd
1: have loved to have met even dying in bed with a on. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: so playing the artful dodger how old were you <laughs>
1: Well, we say gave my, I gave my up, but I gave it twice. Uh you when I was, I gave my Dodger <laughs> twice. Uh, once at a school production, in uh, Grammar School, uh, and it was very, very memorable for me. It was only three nights in the school hall, but I, I think I was very good.
0: I bet you uh, were a great Dodger, actually. Well,
1: I was a very lovesick <laughs> Dodger because I was in love with Oliver. <laughs> and the, the, I will say, no reason why I should say this, but Oliver was played by a girl. Good. Uh, and uh, because very few boys wanted to do that sort of thing, so it was quite hard to find uh, a boy to play Oliver. So we had a, a, a lovely girl. She was uh, she was 11 and I was 12, and Aww. she was absolutely, I fell utterly in love with her. And it, she was Gabrielle Glaister, who eventually became Bob in Blackadder. Oh, uh, uh I and mean, you can see you wonder why <laughs> i fell in love with her how pretty is gabby and you know she's had a wonderful career she's still a very good friend of mine i saw her only, only 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 weeks ago and yeah we were at the same school and i got nowhere i gotta say i oh. never i never did she went out as the as the pretty girls did she went out with a footballer and <laughs> uh, and uh, she liked me but she never let me near her oh,
0: so know, that's forever st- nah. but was that
1: that was the school one. And then then there was the Godalming Theatre Group. And it was, oh my God, I felt, it felt like stardom. They came to see me at school because the music teacher who was doing the Oliver at School was also the MD of the local theatre group, the Godalming Theatre Group, oh, okay. of which I am now president and I've been oh, for you? for many years. Oh. And uh, he said, "We, I think I've got a Dodger for our production. And this was like the big time. It was Godalming Borough Hall, but it was 10 nights. Amateur theatre production, 10 nights. Couldn't believe it. I never I don't think I've ever been as excited again, uh. you know, to be cast. It felt like the West, and it really did. Funny thing about that, any show you're doing is the centre of your life. Of my, course. my daughter was, you know, involved in Cambridge Footlights recently. She had a lovely, wonderful time, and oh my God, the passions and everything. And I said, oh, it's true, you know, you I put on a lot of plays at university. I wrote wrote continually. I mean, like play, play. And um, and every one was as important, frankly, as important as our show that we're yeah. doing right now. You, ne- you know, you can't,
0: you have to. it's heart and
1: soul. And those, those, produ- those productions of Oliver are some of the happiest memories of my life, oh. apart from literally being like sick with lust and oh. love. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, which, for a 12-year-old, was... are unfamiliar emotions, was I Was it doing that
0: role that kind of set the scene that you want to perform, you want to write? N- no,
1: or... my epiphany was actually um, in Onslow Village, which is in Guildford. We moved to Guildford in 1968. I was born in Catford. Uh, but my father, who is a refugee, uh, I have refugees. I'm very... Uh, very proud of the fact my father came here as a terrified 15-year-old boy uh, with no English um, uh, on, you know, escaping from the Nazis. Uh, But um, he eventually became a physicist and he was head of physics at Battersea College of Technology, which during, um, well, a little bit of social history, during... Harold Wilson's expansion. I know you're not necessarily with me on, on politics, but uh, most of the good things that happened last century were under Labour governments. <laughs> and uh, uh, in fact, all of them, frankly. Uh, and uh, so he expanded the universities where they had what they called the yellow brick expansion, the mm-hmm. 70s universities and Surrey University. Battersea College of, Ed- of Technology became Surrey University. My dad became professor of physics at Surrey. And we moved out of Catford and ended up in Guildford, where I, joined the Curtain Raisers, which was the local amateur drama, drama society, uh, because they put up a sign at my primary school, I was nine, uh, for a production of Peter Pan. And I went and auditioned. I tried for John, didn't get it. I got slightly soiled. One of the lost boys, he's called Slightly Soiled, that's <laughs> uh, and And he had a couple of lines and uh, it was a road to Damascus experience. Oh, that was it. it? The moment I was on a stage playing Slightly sword, and I was almost ensemble. I mean, I had two lines. It wasn't wasn't a role, but I didn't care. It was just everything to me, everything. I was completely stage struck. And I thought I wanted to be an actor for two or three years. I thought it was acting. But by the time I was 12, partly because Noel Coward had his... 70th birthday in 1971 and there was a lot of stuff on the bbc about him in those days they kind of were more they took an interest in playwrights i suppose and i just thought well, imagine writing witty things and writing so and i just wasn't just nile cowed i became a huge pg woodhouse fan as well and i yeah. just thought i'd rather write comedy than perform How comedy interesting. and from that moment on i didn't do much acting at all after i mean i did a because you
0: went to manchester university i went right? i left home when i was uh, but you did dr- did I did drama, drama, but I did
1: thir- yeah. I did theatre studies first. I-, I left home when I was sixteen because I I didn't want to stay and do my o levels. I was determined to leave school uh, because I thought I'm going to make it in theatre. And I had these. There were still sort of local theatres in those days. They're almost gone now. Almost rep. I don't know if you- anyone rem- yeah. knows what rep was, but local town theatres had what were called repertory companies, and they would literally be the entertainment because for the because you know telly was in its infancy, and they put on a play a week. I know. I mean, people had learned the plays. But it and- was.
0: Brilliant training yeah, for young actors, wasn't
1: it? It's all gone now. But I thought, <laughs> I'll go and sweep the floor at a rep theatre and they'll <laughs> give me a starring role or let me write plays for them. And my parents were very anxious that I stayed in education. And so I left home. There was this theatre, there was this tech college. It's a tech.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but there was a visionary education uh, educationist there, a bloke called Gordon Valens, who I've been able to sort of honour in, in various ways, who'd come up with the idea that theatre is part of education, theatre should be taught, it should be a... You know the arts, the performing arts are useful to kids, it's a useful of thing course. for young people, whatever level of talent you've got. It, expressing yourself, learning to express yourself is a useful thing. And, and he did it, he had did an A level called for theater studies. So I left home, I lived in a caravan on it. On my own at 16, you? I was living in a caravan oh, in a, an, on a farm, uh, one cold tap and 200 acre toilet out the back <laughs> and a spade, and uh. <laughs> And writing my plays, and and I, I studied, I did my A levels there. It's funny because there was a tiny little drama group, and we were all like, like cool, and like well, we thought we were like, we like we were. sort of hippies. And and then there was this m- big technical, was mainly catering. So they'd all come to the re- refectory in their check trousers and their big tall hats, and we come in our leotards and all. <laughs> that. And they thought we were weirdos, and we thought they were weirdos. It was kind of like yeah. <laughs> Wasn't but we it were all there weirdos.
0: that you met? Rick and no no that aid, was when aid, I went to Manchester oh, University Manchester. to study
1: to study drama because oh, okay. I wa- I knew I wanted to write I, I have no interest really in performing I enjoyed playing pop really? but it's no it's no surprise that I, I it took me literally my entire professional career to take an acting role and then it was just one of mine for a laugh um, <laughs> because I only became a stand-up comedian as a means of making a living you know I was it was 1981 I was 21 i was on the dole i just left university there was a thing called alternative comedy it was a mm-hmm. boom in like suddenly stand up comedy was kind of cool the sort of legacy of letty bruce the great american comedian woody allen i know yeah. we yeah. won't get onto him but those <laughs> those more cerebral comedians yeah. more of an american tradition whereas the british stand up tradition was very much gag telling which was great but it was very much telling jokes mother in law yeah, etc yeah. which is you know it can be a very great art form but not always but there was this new idea of comedy as a medium for ideas which really attracted me and i saw so and i also was getting nowhere i'd written a play about mussolini and sending it to <laughs> i don't know why it was about mussolini but it was <laughs> always been interested in history and uh i'd sent it to every rep company and of course got a rejection letter back so it was almost necessity that turned me to stand-up comedy it was that or get a non-theater job one thing i i alternative comedy was booming. Rick Mayer and Nate Edmondson, with whom we, I made The Young Ones, were already in it. A club called The Comic Strip. Oh, OK. It was a club called The Comedy Store. Very nasty club, really tough place to gig. But yeah, I wrote myself an act just as a means of earning a tenner and getting my material out there. I became my own advert you know.
0: And so how did the idea of the young, did, was it your idea? or was No, it was it there, Rick's idea. It, it so the Rick's young idea. ones,
1: I mean, I can't see I don't know what age anyone is or what, what your experiences are, you're probably all Twiggy fans, but there was a sitcom. <laughs> I
0: doubt uh, it.
1: There was a sitcom right at the beginning of ages called The Young Ones, it which was, was considered a sort of a, a bit of a game changer in that it was a bit anarchic and a bit mad. But most importantly, it was very much centred on youth figures. Most sitcoms used to be about middle-aged yeah. people. Whether they were working-class people like Steptoe and Son or Alf Garnett, or whether they were middle-class people like The Good Life, mm-hmm. it was middle-aged people. Yeah. And there, hadn't re- there had been sitcoms with young people in it. I'm not saying there hadn't, you know, Man About House, things like that, but there were less. And we did that, a thing called The Young Ones. And that came about because Rick Mayle, a visionary genius of comedy, oh. who's died far, far too young yeah. in his early 50s, I met him at university and him and Aid, another great, great, great comic artist, had already formed a double act and they were two years above me. So I was very much farty. I was the fresher. But Rick particularly took to me. He liked my writing and and we became very good friends. And they left and I did another two years at university and kept writing my plays. And then I came to London and they'd already gone to London and they were trying to scratch a living on this alternative comedy circuit. And there was a little bit of groove happening. Think, you know, there was a few of them. Were, Rick particularly were getting a little bit of press interest. And the BBC a guy called Paul Jackson, a producer, oh, yeah. came to the Comedy Store, the comic strip, and and saw Rick and Aid, and said, "I'd love to do try and pitch something to the BBC with you." And Rick came up with the idea for the of young, the young ones. ones. But I then wrote the pilot. I remember it was the most amazing, game-changing night of my life, really, in that Rick rang up. And said, "Come to the pub. I've got a great idea." Uh, and he was there with his girlfriend, who Lisa Mayer, who also uh, co-wrote the the Young Ones. And um, and I went down. And he he said, "I want to do a sitcom based on the characters I do and A does at the, at the club." And there was a couple of others, Nigel Planer and, and Pete Richardson. And he said, "These four characters always men then i mean now we wouldn't dream of doing a sitcom where there was basically only yeah. men but in those <laughs> days it didn't seem strange at all which is you know it's a it's good things have changed i mean well, you wouldn't dream of it you say well where are the women's parts you know where are the diverse parts but in those days poor white guys that was what we did and he pitched the idea to me and i was so excited i went home that night and wrote the whole pile. wow yeah i did i wrote our 28 minute sitcom all night
0: you did and it's That's exactly
1: amazing. what is on the screen wow. the exactly. honestly it scarcely changed at all i did an interview with rick before he died where okay. i showed him the the handwritten transcript and it's and we read it and it's what's That's
0: it's what's on the telly
1: yeah but rick So that must have changed your life
0: because well, it, it was it, so it, huge it wasn't was going
1: it? It, we, yeah but it took a while so Witness, never, ever, ever, <laughs> you know, you know the get don't count your money while you're sitting at the table, <laughs> don't count your money till you've got it. So we pitched this, and we got a pilot commission, amazingly. I mean, the BBC was pretty wild in those days that they would because it's a strange it was a strange script. and oh, it's unbelievably exciting. like the BBC have commi- I was twenty one years old, and they commissioned me to write a, a pilot episode, right? So that commission happened in about february eighty one, right. Mm-hmm. We ended up, we eventually made that pilot a year later, just the pilot, and then they commissioned the series. So it's quite, that was fast, but it's still quite slow if you're 21 and eager. Well, when they commissioned it, February 81, I was living just near Hampstead in a flat that my parents had inherited from their, from his dad, because the German government was very good to um, Jews that survived. Um, They gave them... Yeah, no, it sounds funny, doesn't it really? But yeah, they they after, obviously, the yeah. German government became a very liberal and a very decent government. And one of the things they did do was attempt some kind of making amends. So my grandfather had a, quite a decent pension. And so they had a flat in Hampstead, which I was living in. So a very lucky, privilege of being middle class. So yeah. I was in the right place at the wrong time, yeah. at the right time. I'm not, you know, the fact that I was able to live in London rent free for a couple of years while we were doing the young ones life-changing life, changing. life and that, changing, that's a privilege yeah. that most yeah. it's what our musicals about
0: i know it's I know. exactly
1: about that it's about you know how working class people they're on anyway we won't get into that uh, <laughs> until we do. Um,
0: do we do we might be here all night we might I sorry I'm, you've only
1: asked one question no, I'm where are we, to... i'll just finish this so so we got commissioned and I, there was a butcher on my way from the tube station absolute station where i was where the flat was i'd pass this butcher and i'd always go and buy sausage and i always Wanted, I really wanted to buy one of those steaks, they looked so good and I could never afford it, Aww. never did. Anyway, we got commissioned, I went back and I went past <laughs> the usual sausages. And I said, no, I'm going to have, my girlfriend, I had a girlfriend, we were living and I said, we're going to have two steaks. Oh, I'm celebrating and I couldn't resist it. I said, I've just been commissioned by the BBC, right? sitcom, <laughs> oh, they were quite impressed. Oh, well done you, et cetera, steak, there you go. Marvellous, of course it took a year so for like three months, I'd go in for my sausage. Yo, here's the TV star. When are we you going to see it? I've been looking in my radio times, man. I haven't seen anything. And literally, the months went on. Eventually, I couldn't go in there anymore because they took the piss so much. Because, you know, it took a year. So it like, where was that? You know, I looked like a total fantasist, you know. Uh, anyway, I got the last laugh, but I never went back. You certainly and, I never went back and hit him with me four BAFTAs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did it? Did it get four Baftas? No,
1: not the young one's got one, but I've won four. I
0: know you yeah, have. Thank know, you. Yeah, you've not, got not, so that wasn't many. Wasn't the only awards. thing I
1: did. A couple of Olivias. I'm, so, I'm just and, saying. And, I'm and just an
0: Emmy. Just saying. Yeah, I got
1: an Emmy, oh, a okay. Lifetime Golden Rose. And no, I'm just saying. <laughs> Golden Dagger, Crime Writer of the Year. I'm the only stand-up comedian who's ever won the Crime Writer of the Year Award, that's for sure. It's a beautiful award. It's Is like it? a dagger in a velvet case. It's like a paper opener, but it, you know, well, who who opens envelopes anymore? But you could stab but someone, with it? you've
0: written, what? S- I've written I've 16 novels. S- yeah. Unbelievable. Yes. Do you ever sleep?
1: People say this. I, I, I don't, actually, I'm not. A workaholic. People think, oh, you must work all the time. I don't at all. I've got friends in tonight and they'll testify. We know how to, you know, get I'll on do. a pub and have a nice time. And Good. I don't work all the time, but if you do work and if you actually do some work, you can get quite a lot done.
0: Yeah. And
1: I think artists are quite indulged. You'll often. I don't not so much anymore because everyone's so desperate. You know, it's so hard to what we now say monetize. It's so hard to get paid for anything. Yeah. Um, but in the old days, you'd you'd see, oh, I can't. I, I have a gîte in France, and unless I'm there, I I I really can't write. I have <laughs> to, you know, the Hebrides for me. And it, you think, no, if you can, if you're a writer, you could write. Like I wrote the first episode of the Young Ones in a freezing cold toilet in our flat because Kate was having a dinner party. She that was my girlfriend and she she was a lawyer and she was a pupil and she had her her head of chambers round. So I was writing the Young Ones pilot in the in the loo and we didn't have heating and it was very cold. All I'm saying is if you actually write when you're sitting down, you can get quite a lot written and I have lots of time off. We have lots of holidays.
0: Write straight into the computer or do you handwrite?
1: I, the first the first episode the first series of the young ones and the first series of the Black adder were handwritten um, Richard was typing I was handwriting that's black adder mm-hmm. and so we have real artifact we have the genuine script oh, so have
0: you still got yeah them? yeah, yeah wow. with the, and it's
1: amazing I mean they what used to be cut and paste used to be print scissors and and you'd literally <laughs> you'd stick something on turn here staple c appendix b and that was your you know that was literally the the the, the scripts are just covered in in um, you know bits of glue and bits of
0: brilliant have a, you got you know, them uh, yeah
1: i've got i've got i've brilliant. got those scripts and then uh, then i learned to type and it was one of the best things i ever did i mean honestly learning learning to do proper typing i mean i can't i sort of can you know copy typing when no, you actually do yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't look at the keyboard if you look at a keyboard you'll never learn to type you can you know you, you I, I couldn't draw your keyboard now i couldn't tell you where qwerty is but i could type qwerty really it's one funny how the brain works how and,
0: peculiar. and, and I, I can't i, I can't I,
1: I had this finger chart with you know this is and i just did that and within a few days i was and i can type really fast and it's it was turned so important to me and i went through first i had an old typewriter and then i had a Olivetti where you could remember the little um, the electronic typewriters which was a tiny technological blip just before word processing where you get these little um, reels of gluey tape and you could lift the letters back off the page with I mean that was electric it had a memory and if you put if you put backspace (laughs) correct it would the glue instead of using the, the ribbon it would use this glue and it would lift the letters, but anyway, it's boring to say, but it was a brief period of technology. And then I started, Stephen Fry introduced me to word processing in 1985. He had it. he was a, as you know, I'm sure you know, he's an evangelist for, you know, computing and all that shit. And he 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 showed me his Apple Mac and I couldn't believe it. And I started using word processing and it, it was, it's an incredible tool. If you, Is it? it's the only thing I, I, I use it. I'm no good on computers. I still can't, you know, download apps and things, but I love word processing because all that, Cutting and pasting. Of course, you just cut you and just paste. Just do it. So yeah, I, I type everything.
0: Did you meet? You didn't meet Richard at uni.
1: No, Richard. How did, how Richard did
0: you meet was, Richard? And, and it was how did this is the part I
1: mean, funny thing is, we were we're talking about. You know, you're you're a working class woman, and it's partly what our play is about. How there was genuine social mobility in the sixties. I'm, kind of, I'm middle class, in as much as my parents were teachers or whatever. But I was red brick. And then there was another class. You remember the class? Anybody, anybody old enough to remember TW3? That was the week that was. <laughs> yeah.
0: there was there's that. us. The
1: satire program. Well, there was this program about, there was a sketch about class in the 60s, which we include in our show, where John Cleese, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett are revealed. And John Cleese has got a bowler hat on. And Ronnie Barker's got a little trilby. And Ronnie Corbett's got a flat cap. And it was the class sketch. And Cleese says, uh, I'm upper class, so I look down on them. And then Barker says, I'm middle class, so I look up to him and down on him. And then Ronnie Corbett said, <laughs> oh, I know my place. <laughs> and that was the sketch. It's a very, very famous sketch from, from the sketch. 1960s, uh, which, as I say, we feature in, in our show. Writing. So we went to Manchester, which was kind of not posh, but Richard was part of the Oxbridge gang. Okay. And in those days, that was a huge comic resource. The Pythons were all Oxbridge, mm-hmm. you know, and the original satirists, um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and uh, were were and and um, Alan, what's Alan Bennett, you know. Yeah. Uh, they were all Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge, all men. There was a few women. I mean, there, there was uh, Eleanor Braun And yeah. Anyway. Whatever. Oh yeah. So Richard knew Rowan. Rowan actually did a degree in engineering. Not a lot of people know this at Newcastle. Wow. But then he went and did a master's in engineering at Oxford where Richard was doing um, English, I presume. uh, And um, they had what was called smokers where everyone would go to a little room in a common room and everyone would smoke and drink wine and they'd get up and do little sets. And that's where Richard met Rowan because Rowan got up and did a silent dumb show. He was this slightly older engineering student who is so non-showbiz it's not you know, I mean, Rowan is a deeply private person, and 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 not remo- he won't, you know, he doesn't, he's not interested in that side mm-hmm. of it. But he has this sublime comic gift. I mean, I'd
0: say his ta- his comic it, talent yeah, is amazing.
1: It, it, it's it's in in the, and what he was doing then was without a script, but he was just being funny. He Just got up and was funny. The faces just funny it's an extraordinary thing anyway so that's how richard and rowan met and richard started working with rowan and they did their stuff and eventually they did a thing called blackadder one which was the blackadder mm-hmm. uh, which i wasn't involved in and in the meantime the young ones had come through and been a great big hit and richard sought me out and the reason he sought me out we hadn't met was he he loved the young ones and he wanted to do a sitcom with Madness. Does anyone here remember the pop group Madness?
0: Yeah. Right, I do. they
1: are wonderful. The Nutty Boys, the lovely, lovely, lovely people, and it would have been fantastic. They could all act, they were great. Genuine Camden Geezers, the fantastic people. And Richard, who is, as you know, is not stupid, had, had this idea let's do a monkeys, let's do a London Monkees. Oh, yeah, brilliant. We'll do a Madcap sitcom using this wonderful group of, of lads who write such fabulous tunes. But it was just at the end of their chart success, the BBC, because it was Richard and me and we were sort of hot writers. In a way, we were what they wanted rather than madness. And they can't, we shot a, a one camera pilot for a morning. It was total bollocks. It really, it didn't, it, they, they sort of indulged us, but they didn't indulge us enough to let it work and it, it withered on the vine. And I think it's a great shame because it would have been a, me and Richard Curtis writing a sitcom for madness, I think would have been a very good thing. but. The upshot was because it didn't work. Richard said, also, what hasn't worked is the first series of the Black Adder, or At least it hasn't worked very well. And we want to rethink it. And why don't you come and write it with
0: me? Uh, so that's you joined the, the Blackadder 2? Well, ri-
1: yeah, Richard Curtis and I became the team that created the Black Adder as is known, which is Blackadder 2 to 4, which is a studio sitcom. You see, the first Black Adder is shot on film, no studio audience. It's uh, it's done on location. And as I said at the time, I said, you know, Rowan falling off a horse at 200 metres is no funnier than anyone else falling off a horse at 200 (laughs) metres. But you get in there in front of a studio audience and you let that face go and you give him a syllable he's not very good at, like Bob, and it it becomes... It becomes comedy magic, you know. So yeah, that was so that was how the Black Blackadder came about. Richard and I failed a sitcom for madness,
0: but, but we scored right, a sitcom. Is, didn't it become a huge hit worldwide? It wasn't just in the UK. Blackadder. Yeah. Well, it is.
1: I, I, no, I, I wouldn't say. I mean, it's.
0: It's oh, known I think it abroad. Did. Where, oh, they know it in, in, Australia, they know they it in know, Australia.
1: No, not much in America. Rowan's fame internationally is Mr. Bean, which I have a very tiny bit of. They didn't really let me in on that, the bastards. <laughs> I wrote. Because they developed, they, they developed Mr. Bean. Rowan and Richard had developed Mr. Bean at university. That was their kind of first thing. Oh, it's really? a fantastic sketch. I mean, wow. just. Mind-numbingly good idea, Richard. I, I, maybe it was Rowan's, but I, I've been fortunate after being on the receiving end when Richard, you know, has a great idea, and it happens quite a lot. I remember when we were doing Blackadder Three, Richard came round. We used to never used to write together, but we'd chat together, and then we'd split up and write separately. And he came around and said, I think I've got a good idea. It's about Johnson's Dictionary. Now, perhaps some of you will know that Dr. Johnson famously wrote the first English Dictionary. Well, it wasn't the first, but let's not be pedantic. Um, (laughs) and, And Richard had this simple, he said, what about Dr. Johnson spends 25 years writing the first English Dictionary, lends it to Blackadder, and Baldrick puts it on the fire, and hence Blackadder's got a weekend to write 25 years work and you know right A. <laughs> and and it was just such an incredible idea you know you just you got how you know so that's Richard anyway the first Mr. Bean sketch for those of you who don't know was a silent piece where Rowan it was I did see it later I think he did it for some policeman's ball or something so Rowan's there as Mr. Bean, I don't even know if it was called Mr. Oh, no, no. <laughs> comes on the stage and he's on one side of the stage, the spotlight's on the other. Has anyone seen this sketch? So he's spotless. So he's, like, he's like dumb show doing Mr. Bean. And he, he wants to, you know, he's saying, bring the, you know, and the spotlight won't move. And he's, I want to act, <laughs> he's miming. I want to act here, but the light's over there. Anyway, eventually, having been very funny about that for God knows how long, he gets a straw. And he goes over to the spotlight the pool of light and he sucks it up so that there's an iris there's an iris on a, on a, on the cam, on the on the left so that obviously the technical people are shrinking it and he he you know they shrink it as he says and he go, and he puts it out and then there's and it was just a fantastic and of course they put on the spotlight <laughs> on that side you can imagine the joke simple you just need two spotlights and it's just a fantastic joke. Um, so that was Mr. Bean and it was theirs and my only contribution to Mr. Bean was I wrote the exam episode, the one where Mr. Bean takes a, oh, yeah. Well, say you wrote, I mean, obviously Rowan then takes it and runs with it, yeah. but you know, they have to be written, you know, he gets out a gonk, he gets out another gonk, you know, it's, it's, it's a job. Um, <laughs> so I wrote that, but no, I'm not a part of the Mr. Bean action and frankly, that's the worldwide smash that's that's, that's, what, where, you, that's where you get your Lamborghinis. That's, that's where ah!
0: that's, Yeah,
1: You don't get them from Blackadder. Blackadder is iconic in the UK and known around the world. But yeah, it's I think not, it is known
0: nah. more than you think, I, actually. Well,
1: I know. I see what we get. Mate. Oh, OK. <laughs> she thinks she knows more about Black... Do I talk to you about Vogue? Who knew? No? <laughs> Who knew? I want to talk to
0: you because one of my... I love, it's one of my favourite films that mm. you wrote and um, Kenneth Branagh directed, Directly. I think. Well, I, all, all is True. All is and true. he starred in it.
1: He yeah. did indeed, along with Dame Judi. And I don't
0: know whether you've seen this film, but if you haven't, can you still so, get it anywhere? I might. Mean,
1: well, ev- everything's available. This is a sing? film, it's quite a serious film. It's so lovely It's a beautiful film,
0: actually. It's, it's, I loved it. It was
1: a labour of love. Uh, it's a film about Shakespeare in retirement mm-hmm. and a bubble it's not a comedy. It's the only sort of well we should perhaps use the term major piece of work if i can say that i've ever done which has been very specifically without laughs although there are there are laughs in it i mean there there's humor in it i've written novels which aren't supposed aren't really comedies right? one sort of about holocaust you know not a lot of laughs there yeah. um uh but it's about shakespeare in retirement judy dench played actually played anne hathaway who was a few years older than shakespeare not as much older as judy is but She's a genius actress, so she can play anyone. She could play Twiggy and she'd be great. You know, I mean, Twiggy, she could do anything. Yeah. Um, and Ken plays Shakespeare. And Sirian McKellen plays the Earl of Southampton. Not was, a bad
0: little cast. No, not a bad cast. Considering <laughs>
1: I wrote the script, that was amazing. So Ken wanted to do a serious film about Shakespeare in retirement. He, and it was a lovely thing. I was on an island called Rocknest Island, which is in Western Australia, where my wife comes from. And I, I live half my life over there. and. Um, funny thing is we were locked in because there were storms and most people everyone's everyone was told you have got to get off the island now and go home on the ferries or else there'd be three days there'd be no ferries so most people had to leave because they had you know jobs and babies etc it's a holiday island a little rottenness island it's just off perth in western australia off Fremantle. Um, but we didn't have to go back. Our kids grown up and we, we, we thought, great, we'll stay. We'll stay for the storm. And we were the only people on the island. This shop oh, wow. was still open. you well, know it getting a beer. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, <clears throat> it was a serious storm. And it was, you know, the place was empty and we had it. And it was at that point that Ken Branagh rang me up on a, obviously a difficult signal and said, I want you to write a play about Shakespeare in retirement. I want you to, I don't want you to be funny. I don't want you, I deliberately don't want you to pursue any jokes. I want you to consider what it's like to spend your entire life devoted to your creative muse, your talent, and realise at the end of it that you have messed up your private life, that you have you've neglected the things that matter. Of course, Shakespeare, famous, famous lost a son Hamlet. Many yeah. people have written fiction about this. Mm-hmm. I have. Uh, there's a play currently on at the RSC called Hamnet. Um, the last episode of a sitcom I wrote called Upstart Crow is. Is about the death of another b-
0: yeah. brilliant. Well, it's a piece. that's a
1: that's a comedy, but a Labour lost star and David brilliant. Mitchell. Anyway, he said it was a real challenge. He said talk right about about a life full of success, which has essentially been wasted. In that, the self knowledge that he was able to imbue in his scripts, give everyone else such knowledge, he didn't seem to be able to learn from himself. And it was an amazing. And in the storms, you know, it was a it was a King Lear because Shakespeare's last plays are really interesting. They 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 feature fathers without sons, but with strong daughters. It's interesting that if you look at if you look at um, you start with uh, a Tempest, and you look at A Winter's Tale, and you look at King Lear. They're all fathers with strong daughters. They're father-daughter relationships. And that's really interesting. Yeah. And not often pointed out by critics, I have to say. I was quite surprised to find out how little people had noticed what I noticed, which is, well, that's interesting, because of course Shakespeare had two grown up daughters, both of whom were serious characters, quite very interesting in their own right. So that's gotta, there's got to be something interesting there. But he didn't write about wives. None of, the, none of these, you know, Prospero, Lear, can't remember the bloke in Winter's Tale because I've had half a can of Hells. Um, <laughs> But the, he doesn't talk about wives. He talks about daughters. That's interesting too. Where was Anne in his world view, in his yeah. personal view? She survived him. She was older than him, but she survived him. So yes. anyway, this was the this was the challenge that, that Ken gave me, and it was a beautiful one. And and it, and it ended up being, I think, a very very. It's a really
0: film. good film. Yeah. I think.
1: Well, that's I, kind of those. Those It's those who saw beautifully it have, have
0: shot. It's it. beautifully yeah. written.
1: Well, thank you. And I got a chance to write and Judy Dench sent a little video from the set saying your script is the reason I'm doing this Aww. movie. It's not Kent. Ken, he, she said it's, it's your script How that lovely. brought me, which was pretty incredible. Yeah. She's an Upstart Crow fan. Giles, yeah. oh. Giles Brandreth and her did a whole scene in her back garden yeah oh that's, how yeah. brilliant Giles taped it and yeah but it's it so
0: clever up Crow you well,
1: are well that's nice to, I'm nice to hear I'm not going
0: to flatter you too much well, but you well, are clever well that's very
1: kind of you <laughs>
0: and if you haven't seen up Crow it's absolutely brilliant I'm sure you can still get that online can't I you I don't know I, you get that thing you see like every there's an
1: article in the garden about a new thing and it's on Paramount plus Disney X and I
0: have I got that
1: I don't know I I just presume I haven't got the... I don't know, I don't see any anymore because I don't know where anything is. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, why does BBC take things off I don't Don't ask why me. Why do they iPlayer. take it off? I don't. I just... It's mean. I know. I mean, what's the point of that? No, you're
0: right, because there's a couple of things I went back recently to try and yeah. get again. And they've gone. And they've gone. Or, are they, or, they, or they've taken left. off series one yeah. and left series two and three, yeah. Yeah. which doesn't make sense because if you... If you haven't seen series one.
1: Well, there you go, you, don't you know see. What, anyway, yeah.
0: Now, I want to ask you, because obviously stand up has been a big part of your career. When you first started, you were quite outrageous in your views and what you said. And well, I don't
1: think that's quite the case, but, <laughs> but you know, when you went matter of when opinion. you went
0: back to it, what was in 2019? Yes,
1: it, I did. Because
0: of all the political correctness, did that affect what you wrote and what you said or did you didn't care?
1: I've, I've <laughs> always I've always cared deeply. No, and but I've, I mean I've care been, about
0: behaving. I've always
1: been politically correct, you see. That's the <laughs> point. Some people think I invented it. Some people th- blame me for it. Really? Because back Why? in the early the people think I killed Benny Hill. They literally <laughs> No, they do. In his, in his autobiography in his obituaries, they uh, say, "Well, Benny Hill was driven out of television by the likes of Ben Elton, with their politically correct comedy, their their refusal to allow honest jokes about big tits, and oh, you know, I see. no, I was because I was in the '80s. I was very much do, basing a lot of my material on my personal position as a feminist ally, uh, as a, as a as somebody who believed I, I lived in a deeply sexist, patriarchal society in which." women were diminished and judged by their bodies. There's a bit of that in our play, I know. as as you know. And I did a lot of routines about it. Um, I don't say everybody was, a n- n- and I certainly don't say Benny Hill was deliberately in any way attempting to diminish women, but nonetheless, the women in his comedy series, as they were in many series, were decorative and yeah. the subjects of jokes. And I, I wrote quite a lot of comedy about that. Um, and, you know, I was quite, I had, I was, quite notorious at the time because I was also very anti-Thatcher and you know I, I was say
0: quite political as well.
1: yeah political but in a way the, the world's kind of caught up with me a bit I remember <laughs> I remember doing a routine in the 80s where I would say I was I've always believed in the power of language and I think you have to mind your language I think you have to be terribly careful what you mean and be clear and I used to say because I talked a lot about sex as a young comedian in his twenties, you know, you're doing routines about, you know, your experience, trying to, trying to pull, getting rejected, you know, self doubt, et cetera. And I'd always never presume that the audience was necessarily straight. And I'd say this, the, the, the straight guys in the audience will know what I'm saying or whatever I'd say. And, you know, if you're straight. And, and I remember Aid Ed Edmondson, oh, it's just so pious. Fuck, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't have to say that people know you're straight. But I always thought it was important not to presume Everybody had the same sexuality and as a comedian, I worked that into my routines. This is in the 80s because I had another epiphany moment at university when I saw a young woman at the refectory wearing a badge, this is 1977, and her badge said, how dare you presume I'm heterosexual. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. that's really interesting. What year was that? It's 1977. She wow. was punk. She was cool. You know, she was rock, she had rock against racism on one side. Oh, no, okay. I presumed she was a lesbian. Maybe she wasn't. But I thought, gosh, you're right. Because actually, probably I would have presumed you were heterosexual because we all presumed everybody yeah. was. It's, you know, you even thought maybe Larry Grayson's etc. maybe it's an act. No, <laughs> it wasn't an act. And, you know, like basically gay people hid in plain sight by, by doing a pantomime version of being gay or whatever. Because, uh, of course, it was illegal when I, when, I, when, you, you, when you were first famous. Yeah. It was still illegal. Yeah. You know, John Gielgud was, lived under threat, the greatest actor. I you know. know. Um, and I remember that thinking, gosh, she's absolutely right. I would have presumed you were. And that's I'm not saying we've all got to go around all the time going, you know, what are your pronouns? I know there is a problem that it's all got a little complex, to say the least. But on the whole, I think these developments are healthy, and I was always a part of it. So when I went back on the road... I didn't doubt my ability to express my own moral position comically and honestly, mm-hmm. and if anybody objected, fuck them. And I've always <laughs> felt that, uh, and nobody did. And I did fifteen minutes on 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 trans and my confusion with trans. I don't pretend remotely to. I'm I'm working through it. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it, as we all are. And the routine was. Took that on board. It talked about the generational changes and how attitudes are changing so quickly. The whole basic comic basis of the routine was, "Give us a minute, because this is really big shit." You know, like you can literally change that. Well, this is something I need to process. I can't just leave because for young people, it seems obvious to me. I need to work through it, and that was the basis of the routine. And my daughter said, "You're going to get cancelled, Dad. This is it." And I wasn't, because I think I spoke honestly and and with sympathy to all sides. As I've always tried to do, as you know, because well, we've true. had dinner num- we many have. times. Yes, <laughs> we have,
0: many, many times. And I,
1: you've never taken offence, have
0: you? <laughs> you don't. Oh, I don't no, know. I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't <laughs> take offence at all. No, I think you're absolutely brilliant. But didn't didn't you get cancelled because of COVID? in
1: yours? Oh, I got cancelled physically and like everybody did. It was it, a, it was well, a you cultural were catastrophe.
0: Were in New Zealand or something? Oh,
1: well, you said. I, no, we got going again. Oh, it's a culture. I mean, the, the catastrophe. I mean, a, a, once we once we accept that it was a health catastrophe and and beyond beyond a catastrophe for young people. I mean, I don't want to get controversial, but I think we sacrificed the wrong generation. I fully respected lockdown, but I actually don't think it was the right way. I think basically depriving young people, I deal with that on stage as well. Yeah. I say, you know, the idea that we were all in it together and we all went through it together. No, time is a concertina. When you're young, a year is stretched out. It's a, it's a lifetime of possibility. When you're my age, It's three trips to aquatic aerobics, basically. (laughs) That's what a year is, you know. And so basically, you know, me sacrificing a year was fuck all. Somebody of 16, they had to defer their first shag for 18 months on my behalf. (laughs) And I feel it was totally wrong. I think young people were dealt the, literally, the most, the most poisoned card imaginable and whilst i my my wife doesn't like me saying this she said look a lot of you know protecting granny was important and yes protecting granny was important we've got frail people in our life but i think the fallout from what young people went through months of isolation months of desocialization is 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 terrifying and i dealt with that i don't know why i got onto that but Um, don't
0: you think that?" the government's just panicked and didn't know what to yeah, do. Yeah, they didn't because... know what to uh, Look, I'm
1: not, I, I wouldn't have wanted to try and manage that crisis. Oh, I, no, you no. know, I mean, it, nobody knew what to do. And I mean, But you were in
0: Australia. It wasn't I as,
1: was, no. It well, wasn't as bad It though, wasn't, was it? I, it wasn't. Now, I oh. was in Australia. I mean, I could have been over here, but as you know, my life is half Australian. It was interesting because Australia is a very big country and Australia had the most remarkable schizophrenic experience because whereas West Australia, where I was, had a very short lockdown and because it's a very isolated state, it's enormous. It's the size of Western Europe. But yeah, it's absolutely enormous. I mean, it's bigger than France, Britain, Spain, all put together, that's Western Australia. There's only 3000 people in it. And what they did, (laughs) Well, they're all in basically one place around Perth. And, <laughs> you know, and there's a few drovers up north. And, and of course, there's the indigenous, population. you know, anyway, let's not get on a massive geologi- ge- geographical description of Australia. The <laughs> point was they were able to close their borders, not just to the oh, world, wow. but to the rest of Australia. So this was immensely divi- divert- divisive, but also extraordinarily effective. So Western Australia, we had our theatres open,
0: did you? Within wow. within a
1: cut two or three months we had a four or five week lockdown and after that few restrictions and the theatres were there was a point I can't I couldn't believe it I was able to write to Brian May and, and Roger Taylor because there was a production of We Will Rock You an amateur production of We Will Rock You on in Perth during 2022 <laughs> which was the highest grossing theatre show in the world. It was like a four-night amateur production of We Are Roger, and I wrote to Brian and Roger, "We are the biggest show on the planet <laughs> because we're on an amateur stage in Western Australia. That's so they brilliant. locked the border. So we had, but you couldn't get in, you couldn't get out. I didn't see my mum for nearly two years. Thank goodness our daughter came home just in time. I
0: say, didn't she just get on? Like, she the did, last just plane? got on a plane. But, yeah. the,
1: but our boys, they got trapped in Melbourne. And Melbourne, Melbourne had the hit, most yeah. brutal lockdowns in the Western world. Right. I mean, they—they, they, I think they did about hundred and ninety nights. I mean, they did two hundred nights. It was, I mean, the, the, and it came and went. It was like three months. And that's, these were lockdowns. These were police yeah. curfew oh, lockdowns.
0: Really? Awesome. I mean,
1: kids snuck out and probably yeah. did manage to shag each other occasionally, but it's <laughs> and get a drink. But it was, it was really serious lockdowns and. And, and, you know, a lot of virtue signaling cops and journalists trying to find some poor person sunbathing and send them back oh, home yeah. because they're killing granny. And it was, <laughs> oh, look, there's a flash. And we run out of time. We've only done one question. He's flashing his light. He's oh, fl- dear. I'm sorry, we're banging on. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, Australia had a, diff- a number of experiences and, and my my boys, they they suffered, whereas we would. Yeah, were, I yeah, bet. Yeah.
0: Well, before we kind of wind up, we've got to, talk about what you're
1: doing now yeah well we've got to say that <laughs> because we are doing close-up twiggy the musical i am the i am the very very fortunate um or
0: not does the case oh no make me. Oh, no, no it's
1: it's all very good i twiggy has done me the great honor of, of entrusting me with uh the the task of, of adapting her life story for the stage uh, in a musical um, obviously, she lived through some of the most exciting times of the last century, particularly the '60s, of course. But it's a much bigger story than that. And what interested me, as I think I've mentioned earlier, is, I mean, although you you're a strong woman and you've always been able to to operate on your own terms, but you did you did live in deeply sexist times. You were a model in a in a period where there was a absolute apartheid the men were the photographers women were the models you know and you know the likes of we won't mention his name but you know the notches on their bloody camera stands and um, and so there's a lot of things that interest me about patriarchal politics and most importantly of all social mobility twiggy's life well when you first said to me we were having dinner I'm, well i know you're waving me, we'll get i will promise to do this quickly we were having dinner And and Twiggy was saying, you know, my story, somebody should adapt it, you know, because it's a Cinderella story, really. And I said, Twiggy, it's not a Cinderella story. You had two sisters, but they adored you. And you went straight to the ball at 17 and you've been there ever since. (laughs) Uh, And then we start, because I'd read Black and White, Twiggy's wonderful biography. And I said, but there's so much in your story about, that's about you know, numerous issues, but at the heart of it is class. At the heart of it is you were fortunate enough to come of age in a decade where working class people were not only fashionable, but were deeply valued. The the, the, the Beatles opened up everything. And before you knew it, the whole charts, all the actors, It was an egalitarian society. I mean, all the posh boys were pretending to be working class. Well, what
0: happened to me couldn't have happened five years earlier.
1: Not earlier, but I contend it couldn't have happened 15 years later or since. Yeah, interesting. And And I'm saying that social mobility, which appeared to explode in Britain in the 60s, it looked like everybody had a shot. I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't think, I think levelling up is not only a grotesquely contorted piece of Orwellian newspeak, fucking levelling up. What the, oh, anyway, but also I don't believe, I think social mobility has ground to a halt. I think if you're born into the underclass now, your chances of getting out of it are,
0: it's tough. is zero yes.
1: virtually. I think that there is, uh, the, the the wealth at the top has become literally grotesque. I mean, I, I as, as hedge fund managers and God knows we get richer, I mean, I used to be a lot closer to the top than I am now, I'll tell you that, <laughs> because there's this world of wealth, which is beyond anyone's imagination, which is all about the manipulation of money. When we were kids, the only bloke that had his private yacht was a bloke called Anassis. He was right. famous because he had a yacht. Can you imagine? It's like being Tsar of Russia. Only the Queen's got a yacht and Anassis. <laughs> Now, yachts queue up like buses at Cannes. I mean, literally, there's hundreds yeah. of super yachts because there's hundreds of Anastases. Yeah. They're not making any contribution to society. They're just destroying the planet. But they've got their super yacht. Anyway, it's a that very funny musical.
0: Podcast. It's
1: got. It's a very <laughs> funny musical We were lots of fun, but it does talk a little bit about social mobility. It
0: does. Listen, <laughs> thank you so much. Well, and before we go, we thought, if anyone would like to oh, ask uh, us can anything... We? For Ben, could you just expand on... Uh, the world of today is closer to the world of Stark. Oh. And uh, Twiggy, uh, could you tell us about, a bit about being in the Blues Brothers? Oh, being in the Blues you Brothers? You do that, Twigs. Um, well, I was literally in... They flew me to Chicago. I was there for three days, I think. And the first day I didn't get to shoot because, well, we realised they were going to do a scene with John Belushi and I was going to follow that on, but... He couldn't get out of the caravan that day for various reasons, so everything yeah, Because he was wired. Because
1: uh? he was wired. I mean, yeah. he died of rock and roll. It's um, very sad. But we
0: didn't know that then. No. It was like mm. genius mm. Ac- comic actor. But anyway, I my scenes were actually with Dan Aykroyd. Oh, and comedy. I was the girl in the jag who st- he stood up at the I mean, how cool is (laughs) twigs
1: her peripheral stuff like cover of a bowie album (laughs) she's in the blues brothers peripheral you know the stuff that was just like nice little gig did it you know it's it there's so much of that that's not even the central story of twiggy as one of the great fashion icons and style shapers and shifters of really well ever since i mean she saved marks and spencers let's be honest (laughs) you know (laughs) It's true. <laughs> Not many people can say that. I think that she got the mud for that.
0: <laughs> Literally. <laughs> That's hysterical. other uh, question
1: for you about
0: STARP.
1: Well, very briefly, Start is my first novel, and it was about a world where the super rich were aware that they were destroying the environment and the planet, and instead of, but they didn't want to stop because their activities were enriching them so much. So they had a plan to carry on ruining the planet but from space and they were starks stark was short for star ark and they were basically secretly developing a, a space program for rich people to blast off into space and it's been it's been sort of trending a bit over the last two or three years with Elon Musk and Richard Branson and the bull bloke from Amazon all getting their great big penises and flying up into the sky and their <laughs> phallics. And one of them's even got balls. I think that, yeah, the, the, the Be- Bezos, ball Bezos. It's like, a and it's got, have you seen it? It really has. I mean, you could not make it up, but that's I hysterical. did 35 years ago with Stark. So thank you very much.
0: No other questions?
1: We can get to the pub if you haven't. <laughs> I mean, not everyone. Well, I don't mind, we could. <laughs> <that's crazy. laughs>
0: oh,
1: there's a chap. There's a chap.
0: Uh, i'm going to copy this guy's style and ask a question to both of you about something you've done twiggy i'd love to hear about when you were on the muppet show when i was on the muppet you show. see again the muppet <laughs> show and and ben so, you, i've never heard you talk about filthy rich and cat flap
1: ah well it was a wonderful show I, you muppets much more interesting thank you yeah it was great filthy rich and Catflap flap was in a way the sequel to the young ones it starred uh rickman and uh, nigel planer and Aide Ed edmondson and it was a mad show about 70s um comedy uh a, a kind of satire on the sort of whole world of jimmy tarbuck and De- and des o'connor and all of that and it was great fun a bit a bit mad it wasn't a hit but it's fondly remembered and i hope fondly remembered by it was a moderate hit we only did one series rick rick was going a bit yeah rick and i diverged at that point that's a that's another part we remained dear friends but it, professionally uh, our artistic life sort of separated but that's a podcast for another day and it won't be for a while
0: (laughs) (laughs) and for me doing the muppets it was just a great thrill because i'd i'd been living in america and i knew the muppets from sesame street which was a huge children's program that had had what were the muppets you know kermit and um, jim jim
1: henson 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 puppets yeah
0: And so when I came back to England, and I, you know, I just knew the the Muppets and my daughter, who's here somewhere, she was a little girl and she used to watch it all the time. So I'd watch it with her and I thought they were brilliant. And when they set up the first series, a lot of British stars were turning down going on because they didn't know what the Muppets yeah, were. And when they were told, puppets, you know. oh, they were puppets. Yeah. They didn't, they wouldn't do it. When they came to me, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I'll do the Muppets. How brilliant. Uh, you
1: see, you are a taste definer. And
0: I, it was- <laughs> It was brilliant because I have, I have a lovely scene with Miss Piggy who thinks I'm after Kermit because, you know, she loves Kermit. Mm. And I loved her because she flicked her hair. Mm. <laughs> I thought she was going to hit me, actually. <laughs> but it was, it was joyous what fun and I loved it. it. Doing was the Muppets,
1: great. can you believe it? Brilliant. Oh, my God. <laughs> and she's mates with Paul McCartney. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's got one more question. Oh, make... one more. Oh, Go one on, more. then. One more. It's all the blokes, isn't it? It's all the blokes. Ben. Have you still got your glittery suit? (laughs) no. And thereby hangs a very short tale, Annie Lennox took it off me. Now, there you go. From those of you who know your genius British uh, rock and roll, wonderful Scottish artists, Eurythmics, sweet dreams are made of this. I mean, Annie Lennox was an iconic superstar of the 1980s and remains so. Uh, And uh, she took my glittery suit. Actually, the first one was nicked in a dressing room in Australia uh but uh, i lost my glittery suit but i i I met my wife so that was that was a good dressing room um but uh the second one which was the one i wore on friday night live and saturday live i donated she didn't really want it she didn't want it to wear she said will you give us your glittery suit for a charity auction and i said i will as long as you promise not to tell me what you got because i have this fear i've been to charity auctions when it happens somebody oh little and large have donated their underpants now do i hear Eight pence, you know. It's like, and you just, I just don't want to be the one who's like, well, we got, we got a fiber for it. So I said, <laughs> you're gonna you have my glittery suit, but I don't I'm want sure to hear what you got. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. know. <laughs> Somebody's got that glittery suit, and they got it off Annie Lennox, not me. Anyway,
0: thank you all thank for you coming very much. Yeah. and supporting <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye-bye, bye bye
1: everyone. Bye.
0: Well I hope you enjoyed meeting Ben again because as you know I've had him on before on my podcast but that was our first live podcast in front of an audience which was a little bit scary but actually very enjoyable and um, it was lovely talking to Ben about you know the show that we've done together that he's written and directed about my life and I hope you enjoyed listening to it too and come and see the play. It's on at the Chocolate Factory in London. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye.
1: heard a stripped media production.